I'm Adeline. All right. So uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about the book of Job and, and think about the lens that it gives us uh, for the problem of evil. And this is, you know, sometimes it, it is a little bit disorienting um, because people are used to reading the Bible in Bible classes but are like, well, what, you mean the Bible speaks to kind of this problem as well? And so I think it's important to recognize that if you think back to Old Testament survey, this is part of wisdom literature, that Mm. this is part of the concern. If you think about philosophy as love of wisdom, uh, it's wrestling with these questions of of what really drives us and what what gets uh, gets at us in in this deep way. And so I want to try to unpack the book of Job a little bit, but also give a couple contexts. I have actually a couple different songs here uh, to listen to as well, because I think there's, maybe I mentioned this when we listened to uh, the song a couple class periods ago, um, that, that there's a sense in which I think people often grapple with the problem of evil through works of art. Uh, and even to recognize that the book of Job is this poetic book, right? It's, 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 it's an artistic book uh, that is meant to make us really reflect on and engage these things. And so when you start to listen, you realize that there's actually a lot of, there's, there's songs, there's TV shows, there's movies, where people are grappling with this, this problem of evil. Uh, and so the first song I want to listen to, this is from uh, one of my favorite artists, actually a, a folk singer uh, named Jillian Welch. Uh, and this is her song, uh, uh, Annabelle. And very much kind of, her music kind of harkens back to uh, you know, the, the Great Depression, like hard, harder times. Uh, and uh, so you have the lyrics on the back sheet of your... Uh, of your handout, but just listen to this song and reflect on on kind of the tension uh, that that she holds between faith and, and suffering, and what that looks like in this particular song is uh, as she sings about her her daughter.
Yeah, so part of what I appreciate about this song, other than just being, I think, beautiful musically and yes. lyrically, yes. Uh, is, is that there's a sense of um, clearly the reality of suffering. Yeah. And so you know, the first verse, I mean, just life is hard. Uh, somebody who's farming where they're essentially leasing and all their, all their stuff is just going, you know, it's not really going back to them. Yeah. And so life, uh, life is hard. Um, there, there's also, though, this recognition of good things, uh, especially her daughter, uh, but also um, the mystery of suffering. Why does this happen? Right? The, the, clearly, the song speaks to the death of her daughter. Um, she's in the churchyard, the cemetery. Only got these words on the stone. But I, I love the last two lines of the chorus. Until we've all gone to Jesus, we can only wonder why. Part of what that holds in tension is a sense of both faith and mystery. Ooh. Right, that there's a sense where at no point, you know, in this song is it like, um, mm. so I don't trust Jesus. I don't, I don't trust that God is at work. Yeah. But there's also no attempt to really explain in any way why do I have to experience this suffering? Yeah, yeah. And, and oftentimes when we think about the problem of evil, that's a big part of the drive is to say I want to fully explain and I want to fully understand and make sense of everything. Uh, and part of what this song lives with is this mystery of just not knowing uh, and it doesn't doesn't really try to explain and I actually think you know a song like this is really valuable when you think about this pastorally because a lot of times when we come alongside people who are suffering or even ourselves uh, don't we kind of want to explain it like we're like okay let me make sense of this let me make you feel better mm -hmm. and this just kind of says we can only wonder why right I I'll sit with you and wonder why mm -hmm. but I'm not going to sit here and try to explain, try to make sense of why this is happening, because I just, I just don't know. Um, and so I think it, in a lot of ways this song has what you find in many of the lament psalms in Scripture, uh, which actually are really prevalent in the psalms. Psalms that question God, psalms that cry out to God, psalms that actually do ask why, uh, even when there isn't an answer. Um, but there's this posture of willingness to bring this to God and live in this tension of faith and also mystery about, we just, we don't know. Yeah. Um, and, and so I appreciate the, the, the impulse of the song because I think it's, there's something about this that um, connects up to uh, what I think is a proper biblical response to, to suffering and pain um, that, that holds those things together. So before we dive in and look at some of the key themes of Job, I, I just want to highlight what I would call the problem of the problem of evil. Uh, what I mean by that is, <laughs> is like, what? So we said, like, the, the problem of evil is uh, if, if God is omnipotent uh, and God is wholly good, uh, but there's also uh, evil in the world, 
That, that's the problem of evil. How do all the three of these things uh, make, make sense? This way of putting it, I, I, so here's what I want to clarify. This way of putting it is actually a modern problem. This way is a fairly recent way of, of wrestling with this and struggling with this. Uh, and it arises uh, when people, when there are a few assumptions that people have in their mind. Uh, and so this is, this is what uh, Charles Taylor, a philosopher, uh, calls providential deism. And, and deism is this notion, not of necessarily even a personal God who is constantly interacting with and related to his creation, but it's, it's a designer God who kind of sets the world up and, and the world runs, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, and it, it does its thing uh, and uh, it works in a certain way. And what, what Taylor points out is like this way of looking at things is something that arises in the 1700s, especially in, in, into the 1800s. This way of looking at things says the ultimate purpose is to human life, is human flourishing. Um, but but not, not even necessarily this kind of broad, kind of rich Christian sense, but more in the sense of like human life is supposed to go well. Back to kind of like the pleasure filled. Right, like it's like the point of, of life is that things should go good for us. Things should harmonize in terms of physically or these other, other things that we deal with. That there really should be, um, that the ultimate purpose is that, that human beings enjoy life, that they're able to kind of maximize their, their full potential uh, and, and do all of those kinds of things. Um, and, and, and they want to do on this side of eternity. Yeah, yeah, but really it's very much focused on, not so much on the afterlife where there's yes. something still to come or something yes. more. It's like in this life, we should be able to achieve sort of maximal human flourishing. Yeah. Well, this could be because um, they, a lot of people, I mean, some people think that, well, there's nothing after death, you just die. Is that why? Yeah, yeah, and, and that could be part of it. And that as, as you go from kind of a, a rich Trinitarian biblical theology to sort of this like designer God who creates the world, Almost back to the argument from design that we like we looked at at Paley, where it's like, hey, look, God designed the world, but as we talked about, it's not really. You can't jump from like designer God to I believe in Jesus Christ or designer God leads me to the Apostles' Creed, right? Those are that's a much richer. There's something way more going on there than just special revelation. Hey, I look around the world and see this design. Yeah, and, and in mentioning special revelation, part of it, in this framework. Providential deism essentially says, I don't need revelation. I can use my reason to look at the world around me and understand the world, how God designed it, how created it, so it would all kind of work in a good way. And so really, there, there, there's no mystery in this framework. I should be able to perceive the world that the designer God made, see how it's made so that human beings can uh, sort of achieve their best life now, to quote quasi-heretic, um, uh, Joel Osteen, you know, that's what it's all about. It's about your best life now. Uh, how, do you, how do you make this happen? You look at the world. And so in this framework then, um, when you do see the reality of evil, uh, especially suffering, it's like, well, how does this fit? Because it doesn't, it seems like this is not leading to human flourishing. And so reason seems to tell me that there isn't a God. Right, because there's really nothing, there's nothing beyond the ultimate purpose of human flourishing. There's no mystery, like my mind should be able to grasp everything that God's mind grasps as he creates a world. So I should be able to perfectly understand it. Uh, and so the problem of evil yeah. is this peculiar, peculiarly modern problem. So that's what I mean by the confusing phrase, the problem of the problem of evil. 
that there are, there are certain conditions, certain ways of thinking that produce this problem. It's not as though this problem is just sort of always there in the same way throughout all ages of philosophy or, or theology or something like that. Yeah. And I think this is a contrast with the book of Job because Job is wrestling with not this modern problem, uh, but this more ancient problem that, that is not just talking about the, this designer God, but is talking about the covenant God. And so this is not just an impersonal deistic God. It's here's a God who reveals himself. Here's a God who makes promises. Uh, and here's a God who keeps promises and, and is faithful. And part of the question for Job, and I think when you look at this in the context of the entire Old Testament, even in, in entire scripture, mm-hmm. is how do we make sense of it when the people of God suffer? How do you make sense of it when, when Job, who looks like, to all appearances, he is this person who is faithful, who, who is a righteous man, and yet he suffers? So what do, what do we do with that? Because in a lot of ways, that seems to even work against some of what we see elsewhere in Scripture, in, in Deuteronomy or in Proverbs, yeah. where it's like, do good and you'll be blessed, do evil, you'll be cursed. Yeah. How, how do we make sense of this when the covenant people of God, those who are faithful, suffer? Um, I, I think about this a, a lot because we're preaching through Revelation right now uh, at, at my church. And part of what you see in Revelation is that there is this immense suffering that the people of God experience. So how do you make sense of the suffering, the persecution, the trial, what, what, what's going on there? Yeah. Um, that, that's a big question. But part of, part of the difference here between, I think, how Scripture approaches the problem of evil versus this, this modern approach is that there's an ultimate purpose that is beyond just human flourishing in the here and now. And that that ultimate purpose is that we worship and glorify God. Come on, it's come something on. that takes us outside of ourselves. It's something that takes us beyond ourselves Mm. Um, and so in that way, Amen. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't totally make sense for a lot of modern people where the, the, the highest goal is really achieving your best life now. How, you know, wow. what's, and so anything that's an obstacle to that is a problem. The problem that Job is wrestling with is can you worship and glorify God even in the midst of pain mm. and suffering? Mm. Uh, that's a different kind of question because right? in some ways it's not even questioning the existence of God. Mm-hmm. It's, are you going to continue to worship and glorify God, or are you going to do what Job's wife says, which is curse God and die? Uh, and you know, what, 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 what's going to be your response uh, in the midst of that? Wow. Now, I think in this context, we also see, in contrast to the previous slide, we need revelation yes. in this slide. So this, yes. in the book of Job, in Scripture as a whole, there, I don't think there's this notion that we can just look around the world with our natural capacities and reason and kind of make sense of everything. That we actually need God to reveal himself. We actually need to be told what is the truth that goes beyond just what we can perceive or come to conclude by our reason. And that even in this, so think, this is an interesting thing, the more that God reveals himself, in some sense, the deeper the mystery there is. So you would think, well, if God reveals himself, then we know everything, right? But the more you actually see the, the, the immensity and glory of who God is, the more you recognize how much God is beyond you and how much we actually don't know and that, that we can't wrap our minds around totally, even when we have revelation. Uh, and so, so, so this view is not assuming that we are going to be able to look at the puzzle and puzzle all the pieces together. It's saying even when God fully reveals himself to you, 
part of what you're going to realize in the fullness of that revelation mm-hmm. is that there are still things that are beyond you. Amen. Um, and so that's, it, it's a very, it's a very different posture. It's a very different approach. And so that's why I, I want to clarify this because if you expect the book of Job to answer the modern problem of evil, you're going to actually be disappointed. Right? So that's why I, th- I think we have to be careful. Um, I, I think Dr. Cruz is pretty clear about this when he talks about this in Old Testament survey and elsewhere. Like the book of Job doesn't provide most of the answers people, modern people want. Right? It doesn't provide an answer to the, problem, to the modern problem of evil. It in fact points us back to how that problem itself maybe needs to be rethought or reshaped or if you can say it this way, it's kind of a bad problem or a bad question to ask. It, it sets the framework up in a, in a problematic way. So I, I want to just briefly highlight that a few of the themes that you see in the overall book of Job and how that, um, uh, how that interacts with this different way of framing the problem of evil. So as I mentioned already, one of the key themes is why do we serve God? Why do we worship God? Why do we praise God? Um, th- this is kind of the behind-the-scenes bargain that sets this up, right? This interaction between God and Satan. Um, or the, the, the accuser, right? This is one of the ways, the, the language here uh, is that... Um, yeah, almost that of a prosecuting attorney uh, in the heavenly court where the prosecuting attorney says, look at Job. Uh, he's doing great, but I tell you what, you know why he's doing great? Uh, because his life is good. And if his life goes sour, uh, I guarantee you that he is going to turn away from you. The question that raises for me is, do I serve God, worship God, praise God simply for what I can get out of God? Right? Is God a means to an end for me? Mm. Right? Like, is, is my worship of God instrumental? Like, God, I will praise you if you do this, or I will praise you since you do this. But if you don't kind of fit my expectations, especially in a consumer society, right? Like, if, if, if you're no longer serving the customer well, then I'm going to walk away. And this is, this is what Satan says. This is how Job is going to respond. Um, what do, what do you do in the face of suffering? Do you say, well, clearly this shows that God is not there, God doesn't care. What does this do? Um, so that, that's, at least for me, that, that's like this question that kind of cuts to the heart in a yeah. lot of ways when I think about um, how, I, how I often do treat God. Um, why am I worshiping him? Why am I praising him? Uh, it's also, I, I always appreciate Job's friends and their initial response. If you, if, if you have your Bibles and want to look uh, in Job... I've, I have my large parallel Bible, so it's harder for me to find things here. Um, what is it, parallel Bible? Yeah, it's like four different versions Whoa. on the same page. Um, so in Job, in Job 2, uh, verse 11, it talks about his friends. They, they heard about all his troubles. They, they uh, set out from their homes, met to, together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. If Job's friends had just stopped there, that probably would have been the best thing they could have done. <laughs> right? <laughs> because I think this shows us but that, that initial instinct, I mean, think about that. I, I don't know about you, but I've never sat with somebody for seven days and seven nights on the ground in the midst of their pain. Mm-hmm. But I think part of what that speaks to is the power of simply being with in suffering rather than trying to 
fix, right? Like I'm a problem solver. I'm somebody who wants to fix things. I want to make it better. So I'm looking for what can I do? What can I say to make it better? And sometimes there is nothing you can do. It's about entering into the pain that someone is experiencing and identifying with them in that. Yeah. Uh, this reminds me of an episode of Parks and Rec. Hmm. So Anne Perkins, she's pregnant and she's like, ah, like this hurts. I hate this. Why is this happening? Yeah. And Chris is like, oh, here, let me give you a massage. Let me go do this. Let me. And he's always constantly like fixing her problems. Yeah. And she's like, all I want you to say is like, it sucks. And yeah. just like sit there and agree and like, that's exactly what's happening here. Yeah. In this first part. At least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that, that's a great illustration. And I think that there, I had to, I I remember this conversation I had with my wife pretty early on in our marriage that was almost, because she's a communications major and she's just really good at communicating. And, and she like said, time out, let me explain to you what I'm doing, what I'm telling you. I just trouble, trouble, struggle with this at work and this. And I'm like, well, maybe you should do this. Maybe. Oh. She's like, and she's like, I just want you to say yeah, yeah. that sucks. That's yeah. really hard. Like that must be tough. Nail. It's not about the nail. Yeah. It's yeah. another video that highlights the same thing. It's not, it, it, it's not about that. And so I think that again, this is where we have to, we have to be really careful here. It's easy for somebody like me to kind of get lost in the philosophical, logical stuff yeah. and recognize that what people really need is not a philosophical explanation. What they need is this embodied care yeah. uh, and identification. Mm. Yeah. Well, what about those of us who do want, who do go through suffering, but want other people to like fix or help us to fix or like give us like 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 when uh, you go to the counselor or whatever, you're like, okay, yeah. fix this. Like I don't. Like, can you just give me yeah you know, steps and and their response is like, well, your situation is more complex. A little bit later, and of course, that frustrated me. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 And so, yeah, so that's a good point. So that's, that's not to say there are some instances, right? Like if you have a nail sticking out of your head in the hilarious video where it's like, yeah, you need a doctor, right? You need somebody who can, can give you some, some ways to think about how to alleviate the suffering, how to, how to move ahead. Um, I think it, I think it's recognizing this balance of there are things you can do, but even some of the things that you can do, it may not be sort of ultimate solutions or they may not fix it in the way you want that sometimes human life is, is, is oftentimes it's how do you live with this, this tension of this is, it's not perfect. And there's no, you know, this is part of what we do sometimes. Like I'm thinking here about human relationships is like oftentimes we do things to relationships that you can never kind of put back together again. Uh, and so how do you live in the pain of that and, and live with the best, maybe the best possible scenario, even if it's not a perfect one. And, and so a lot of, th- I, like we have that longing for things to be perfect, things to be set completely right. That's only going to happen when Jesus comes. And so how do you, how do you both be patient with that, but also be willing to do what you can to fix things without recognizing it's probably not going to be the ultimate fix or ultimate solution yeah. um, in, in those scenarios. But, but yeah, that's really important. I'm not saying never, right, that it's never right to provide some kind of path forward or guidance or things in those kinds of situations because I think that is, that is something that we, we can look for. Um, a, a couple other themes. One is, and this is, the, this is part of the conversation I mentioned that Job is having with Proverbs, with Deuteronomy, because both, for both of those books, the reality of moral cause and effect is, is huge, right? In Proverbs, it's like if you are lazy, 
right? then you're going to run out of food to eat. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of times people make the illogical assumption if you don't have food to eat, that's because you're lazy. That's not what Proverbs says. Um, yeah. Right. So, so we have to think about how that works. But there is a sense that like, God made the world with this moral cause and effect. So what do we do? And, and, and we recognize there are many situations in which that does hold true. Yeah. But what do we do when we, when we recognize that that's not always the case? When you do have, as little met psalms ask, you know, why do the wicked prosper? You know, it's, it's not always as simple as if you're, if you're wicked, life is horrible for you. Yeah. And if you're righteous, then life is awesome. Yeah. Right? In fact, yeah, you, you look at the little met psalms, it actually seems more like, like the, the, the reverse. Um, but if anything, part of what Job helps us see is that while the reality of moral cause and effect might be a, a general rule, it's not something that holds in every single instance in every single case. Uh, that it's, that it's, it's much more complex than that. Uh, this is also linked to, to how Job talks about a life of, of wisdom. Um, that a life of wisdom has to account for, has to, has to think through what is our relationship with God, not merely... Um, what's our relationship with other human beings or, or how we think about those things because uh, at, at the heart of what Job is wrestling with is, is really theology. How do you understand who God is? Mm. How do you understand what God is doing and, and, and interacting uh, with you? Uh, and so that that's part of what Job is aimed at is saying what, what does it mean to live a life of wisdom? And I think one of the answers that you find in the book of Job is a life of wisdom means recognizing your own limits including the limits of what you can know and what you can understand. Um, that, wow. that there's a kind of, that, there, you know, that r sort of reaching beyond that is actually foolish. Uh, and, and accepting your place. Think about how this ties in with the theme of Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 through 3, where human beings kind of are not content to be the image of God. They want to be like God. They want to be God. Wisdom means recognizing your place, recognizing your limits. Uh, and being willing then to, to live within that. And that, that, was, um, that, was, that, was, that was awesome. That was packed in. That was, hallelujah. Yeah. That was like, oh, thank the whole you. bubble was full. You know yeah. Like, I hit with that and take me out. That's like, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, 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 yeah, like a bullet point part, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, everything just, it was just, ah, yeah. back, back to the garden. Yeah. Back to the garden. Yeah. Seeking that knowledge in the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What is, what is real wisdom? Yeah. Um, which, I mean, even this ties into our conversation. God doesn't say don't eat from that tree because it's bad. It's actually good. What the tree is? The, the, tree, the tree is good. The fruit is good. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that it's an evil thing. Yeah. It's, it's good. But God says uh, eat it. Don't eat it now with the assumption that maybe later will be the right time, right? It'll be the right context. Okay. And so the question here really is are you willing? It's really about are you willing to trust God? Dang. That God has your best interests at heart, uh, and and do that rather than start to do what we usually do, which is start to vibrate with this fear that like maybe God doesn't really have my best interests at heart, so I need to take things into my own hands, which mm. usually well usually slash always ends up making things worse rather than better, uh, mm. and so so yeah, so that theme of wisdom is really tied into understanding uh, how all these things work together. Uh, wow. uh, a couple other themes. When we think about a theodicy, a theodicy is, is this attempt to either accuse or to justify God. Um, part of what Job wrestles with a little bit is, is this even possible? Uh, in Job chapter 9, I love what Job says here, Job 9, 
32 through 35. Uh, Job says, he's not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other uh, in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. And it's interesting, how, you know, several times actually through here, uh, Job basically says, like, I want my day in court with God. Like, I have an actual accusation against God that I would, that I would like to bring because this is unjust. This isn't right. Um, Elihu's response, if you look over at Job 37, and Elihu kind of comes on the scene uh, uh, more toward the end. And, and this, is, this is what he says. He basically says, okay, Job, I know you want your day in court with God. Um, but in Job 37, 19, he says, tell us what we should say to him, to God. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. And by that, because of our, because of our limits, because of the, our lack of knowledge. So it's kind of like, Job, you, know, you want your day in court with God. But, but think about somebody who's making their case in court. They have to be able to appeal to, to evidence. They have to have reasons for what they say. And he's like, Job, you might have a few puny reasons, but overall... You have no clue about what's really going on here. And so it, we don't like that. I don't like that that much when I'm in the midst of suffering. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm like, I want my day in court. This isn't right. I want answers. I want answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what he says here actually reminds me of this, this uh, uh, short story that Ravi Zacharias tells uh, as he wrestles with the problem of evil. Uh, and people's questions about it. And so this, this as well speaks to our limits, uh, speaks to, in some sense, our, our, our darkness, our lack of understanding. Uh, so listen to, to this story that he tells and how this relates to this question. Example, we know so much. The story is told in the Eastern folklore of this man who lost his horse and ran away. And when the horse ran away, the neighbor came to him and said, you know, bad luck, isn't it? Your horse is gone. He said, what do I know about these things? few days later, the horse came back with 20 other wild horses. And the neighbor came and said, amazing, it's not bad luck, it's good luck. You've got 20 more. And said, what do I know about these things? His young son is going and taming one of the new horses. That young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes and says, terrible, isn't it? Your son's leg is broken, bad luck that these horses came. The fellow says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? Few days go by and a bunch of thugs are coming looking for recruits to join their gang and they're looking for all the able-bodied young men and they're about to pick this young man but find out his leg is broken and they say we don't want him we're going to move on to the next house so the man comes and says good luck isn't it your son's leg was broken in one little series of episodes we don't know what lies ahead why don't you wait till you stand before god face to face and you will find out there were reasons why he didn't stop that trigger so that you will see the heinousness of evil and see the majesty of love and good managing to navigate yourself but the Buddha has a pilgrim's progress to come to the celestial so, so yeah. we must trust God basically he says yeah and so part of that you know he says think about this small series of you know four episodes and realize how, how quickly we're like, oh, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing. Um, but how limited, even in, that, even in that scenario, we are to be able to really say, is this, is this ultimately a good thing? Is this ultimately a bad thing? How do we understand all of this? And part of this harkens back to 
Augustine, when he talks about time and eternity, he's like, you know, only God is the one who has this eternal picture of, of how things play out, right? We're, we're like trying to, it's like trying to judge uh, a song or trying to judge uh, a TV episode or series or a movie by taking a clip of it, right? It's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm 38. I'm going to judge my entire life by what's happened so far. Well, I don't know how the rest of it goes. I don't, I don't have this sense of how this all plays out or what God might be doing yeah. uh, in the midst of this. And so when we, when we kind of jump to say, to say this, his point is like, what do you really know? Like, maybe that should be our answer. Uh, you know, what do I know about it? You know, the guy keeps saying repeatedly, like, we kind of want to jump to label everything automatically uh, in the sense that maybe, there, maybe there's more going on here than, than we can see. And part of this, again, this goes back to the, the leaven of faith that we talked about last time. Part of it means you have to believe that there's something going on more than, than just what you see. Um, because if you don't, that, really, that will affect how you perceive everything. Because you, you say, like, I'm the final judge of whether something is ultimately good or bad or how this is going to look. And putting ourselves in this limited position means I recognize there might be more going on here than I, than I realize. Uh, a, cu- a couple other things. Um, that I want to highlight just briefly. Uh, one is, like the lament psalms, Job is not afraid to lament. And this is one thing that I think Christians are actually really bad at. Yeah. Um, we're not very good at lamenting. Yeah. Uh, because I think for some reason, yeah, we, we think, well, maybe it's providential deism, right? It's, it's not biblical faith, because if you look at the Bible, people are constantly in the psalms and elsewhere like, God, why, why is this happening? Why don't you show up? Why don't you do something about this? Why don't you... Right, step in, um, it's good providential deism. It's like, no, this all makes sense. We should never question God. We should never, right? If God's ways are mysterious and above and beyond us, we would expect there would be plenty of times where we're like, God, what are you doing? Uh, and so I wonder if our, if, our, if our lack of lament really says something about our, our lack of trust and faith in God, that, that maybe our God is more the deistic God than it is the Trinitarian God of, uh, of Scripture. Um, because even in lament, there's this sense that I'm taking this to God, right? That I'm not just taking it elsewhere or living in my own thoughts, but I'm, I'm going to bring this uh, to the one who knows and the one who can actually can actually do something about it. And it's amazing. I don't, I don't know if you've had this experience, but when you take those things to God, you have this experience that the psalmist often does, which is at the end of the lament psalms, there's a sense of, God, I trust you. You're, you're faithful. I know you're going to be there. I know you're going to do good. Even if I... Don't get it all. And that's what I'm telling you right now is I do not get it all. And it does not make sense. And it does hurt. Um, but to think about how we process that. Um, the last couple things. I just want you to see. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head if this is 14 or 19. Uh, I think it's Job, in, in Job 14. Um, where God says this, which, which uh, to me just sounds crazy. Uh, when, when I stop and think about it, Job 14, um, 15. Well, actually, let, let's back up uh, verse 13 to get some context. He says, if only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger is past. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Think about that. It says, you will long for the creature your hands have made. Uh, this is in Job 14, 15. I think usually 
and we, we think about our longing or our desire for God. But part of what this is saying is like God actually desires us. God longs to have this relationship with us. And that as he goes on, Job says, Surely you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. What you find multiple times in Job is this confidence like God is going to forgive his sins. God is actually going to restore him to life, not just in this life, but there are these glimpses and hope of the resurrection in Job uh, that are very strong. And so I think we oftentimes you know, t- tend to think about God's love um, in, in a way that maybe doesn't fully grasp this, that if, if we are suffering there's this clear sense which God is suffering with us. God is longing to overcome that. Mm-hmm. God wants to dwell with us. This is the theme of scriptures. That God wants to dwell with his people and he's not going to let anything get in the way of that, whether it's sin, suffering, or even death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Job, I think, expresses this, uh, th- this point very helpfully. At the end of, of Job, and I would suggest, you know, sometimes just read like Job 38 through 41, um, Outside, not inside. This is like in Wendell Berry says the Bible's an outside book. Job especially is an outside book. Because uh, inside we're very controlled. It's this environment where we can maintain this illusion that you're in control. When you're actually out in the middle of the woods, when you're out at Lake Michigan, you know, standing on the shore, you're like, this is bigger than any human being has control over. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and so what's interesting is that when God shows up in the book of Job, what does God do? Well, what God does not do is answer all of Job's questions. In fact, what God does is ask Job question after question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you here? Where were you there? And part of what this is showing uh, is that that God is intimately connected to and knows his creation in a way that goes far beyond our knowledge. You know, God, I I love, as he goes through all these things, he's like, you know, he basically asks, where are you when the mountain goats are giving birth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, I love this image of, like, God is a midwife to mountain goats. Like, God, God is there. Like, God knows what is going on in his entire creation at, at all time. Uh, and so it's not like our suffering. He's like, oh, I didn't realize, Job, you were sitting over here and going through some difficulty. Uh, right? God's like, I, I know what's going on. And, and this knowledge far surpasses your knowledge and your ability to, to, to understand and come to grips with. And so, to me, what Job needs uh, is not more answers. He actually needs the presence of God with him, which is what happens. God shows up actually in kind of a terrifying way, but the, the presence of God there with him um, is, what he, is what he actually needs. Uh, and in some sense, you know, much as we don't like this, because, I mean, I don't like it when I'm suffering— you know, there's a sense in which Job kind of is put in his place a little bit. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Yes. Where God says, like, Amen. just recognize who you are and recognize who I am. Yes. Um, and and that's, that's really crucial to this whole thing being able to, being able to move forward. Wow. It's that's also good. important, and this I think is interesting, you know, what does Job never know? Job never knows the way this story gets set up with this kind of heavenly wager where Satan is saying, "Hey, um, I'm going to I'm going to show I'm going to show this." So I think think about it this way: Job never learns the deeper spiritual battles going on behind the scenes. So what is Job trying to tell you and me? Well, 
Job's trying to tell you and me, there are spiritual battles going on behind the scenes that you may never know. Oh, right? fire. What's that? Did Job write Job? Uh, no. Somebody else. Yeah, somebody else, somebody else wrote this. And so there's, so even this, it, like, I'm seeing the backstory of Job, but precisely what I don't get to see is my own backstory. Um, and so I have to recognize that there's this story that's unfolding that I don't, I don't have the full picture of, um, but I, I have to move forward in this. I think it's also important to ask, to whom does Job point us? Why do, why does, Job was like, why does the righteous suffer? You know, think about how Job points us to the reality of Jesus. Right? If, if, if we want to say, like, it is not right that a righteous person should suffer. Right? Well, that's, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who is perfectly righteous, uh, who undergoes suffering uh, for something, again, much bigger uh, than himself. And so when we think about, man, why... I mean, when I think of it, I'm like, I don't want righteous people to suffer. That's not how the world should work. And yet my salvation hinges on the suffering of the righteous Son of God. Jesus. Oh, my goodness. And so there's a mystery there, right? There's a mystery that, that through that, uh, God, God is at work. Dang. Um, that's that's mind-blowing, man. And so for me, what, you know, what does God's response tell us uh, about our response. It comes back to th th this question of understanding, again, this is the love of wisdom, understanding who I really am, understanding my place as a creature in God's creation, mm -hmm. and being willing to, to trust the creator, uh, and trust that he is the creator and the redeemer, and that, that he's at work um, in, in ways that I can't, that I can't fathom, uh, that, that I can't fully grasp. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, this transforms then, I think, oftentimes how I, how I think about suffering, how I think about difficulty. Um, I want to listen to another song. Uh, this is a song from Maris Yahoo uh, off his album Light. Uh, the song is called Silence, and it is a kind of, it is a kind of lament psalm. Um, but I, I want to listen to this, and then I want to think a little bit about the, image, the imagery that, that, that he's using here as he, he cries out to God from this from this place of pain uh, and suffering.
a couple things going on in that song that I think is interesting. So, um, so think about this imagery, and you see this in Scripture as well. Um, uh, the name of this album uh, is actually Light, right? So when you think about light, what is a light? A light is a witness, right? A light is a sh- it shines and points to, to something Jesus says. Uh, you are my witnesses. He says you are uh, a city on a hill, right? They can't be hidden. You're, the, you're this light. Um, in Jesus' world, uh, how do you get light? Well, the main lamps that they used uh, were, were lamps uh, filled with olive oil. Uh, olive oil is, um, burns, burns mostly clean. It was something that they used. There were a lot of olives in that, in that context. How do you get light from olives? They have to be crushed. Um, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Um, the translation for Gethsemane is olive press. Oh. How do you get light? How do you get witness? You get it through a kind of crushing. Mm. Right? That there's this, this crushing that happens. Think about the language of, of Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. That there's something in this suffering that actually produces this light, this, this witness. And what I appreciate about this, this song, he's saying, you know, I'll crush my fantasy. Like, here's how I want life to be. But what has to happen is this sense of, like, how, how, how do I be a light? How do I be a witness? In some ways, maybe there's no way around the kind of crushing that happens to our sinfulness, our selfishness, maybe just our own, our own desires for what life should be that actually allows there to be a, a kind of witness here. And as I think about this... Um, you know, it's a reminder, even though he ends this song, you know, your silence, you know, we know that God has spoken and his final word is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And that in Christ, he has carried our sufferings, our sin, and carried death uh, so that we can have hope that these things are overcome. Not that they are the last word, but that Jesus is the last word. Amen. Uh, and so that, I think, very much reshapes how we look at, how we look at suffering, that there's this the sense in which we recognize, as, as Scripture says, that, I mean, can we say this? The Apostle Paul can say it, and he went through a lot of stuff. He's like, you know, these, these are just temporary trials mm-hmm. right, that are passing away, but there's an eternal weight of glory that's being prepared for us. Um, that's something very different. So I would say biblical philosophy of suffering, if you can say it this way, recognizes that our end goal, our end purpose, uh, is to glorify God. Uh, that it's, it's, it's not just about us having an easy life or the best life possible, but there's a sense that God's glory, and oftentimes that God's glory comes when we endure through trials, through sufferings. James 1 talks about this. Hebrews 12 talks about how Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And so there's a sense in which we recognize there's something more going on here. Even, even in Job, right, he, amidst all his questions, he doesn't curse God and die. Um, what, what's, our, what's our focus? What's our posture toward God? Um, the importance of faith. And I think this is very closely connected to, to this idea of mystery we've been talking about. If God is completely understandable and knowable and his ways are my ways, then I should be able to look at the world and say, this doesn't make sense. God, I don't believe in you. But if his ways are higher than my ways, then it is going to take faith because I recognize there's a mystery here that I don't fully grasp and maybe never will mm-hmm. uh, in, in this life. Uh, and so... 
so then that's why we just do endure. Not you understand and endure, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's just there's a sense of, I, I don't understand what's at, at play here. There's also, this is something I haven't talked too much about, but I, I do want to end on this note, the importance of community. Mm -hmm. uh, that Job, even, even as we sometimes kind of make fun of Job's friends or like, what are Job's friends doing? Um, part of what sustains us in suffering is community. Uh, that we are not walking alone. We should not have to walk alone through suffering. When you think about what Paul says, uh, if one member suffers, the entire body suffers. Uh, are we living in such a way uh, that we are connected to and that, that we are in some sense God's presence with mm -hmm. people who are suffering, uh, our friends, our family members, um, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. Right? This, this, this is who we are. Um, and so a, a couple of quotes we'll end on this note. Um, in a book called The Theology and the Problem of Evil, the author, Surin, says this, in a properly Christian context, conversion is inseparable from fellowship, come on, come on. a fellowship which is itself at root fellowship with the Trinity itself. Wow. This fellowship is inseparable from commitment to a community, a commitment expressed in sharing its way of life, its customs and practices. So following Jesus calls us into community with each other. Stanley Hauerwas then furthers this point. He says, historically speaking, Christians have not had a, quote, solution to the problem of evil. Rather, they've had a community of care that has made it possible for them to absorb the destructive terror of evil that constantly threatens to destroy all human relations. And it's, it's a community, I want to be really clear, it's, it's not just that we kind of care for each other, because lots of communities do that, but it's a community that ultimately looks to the cross and resurrection for yes. what gives us hope and what sustains us uh, as a community in this. Um, but th th this is a much different, hopefully it's clear that this, this biblical philosophy of suffering actually leads to uh, a kind of practical community of care, mm -hmm. whereas uh, the wrestling with the modern problem of evil oftentimes can, can leave us um, maybe isolated in our yeah. intellectual wanderings or, or maybe even isolated in our bitterness. Um, mm -hmm. It's not really something that draws us into a, a community and calls us out of ourselves, uh, whereas if we understand the way that God himself, in some sense, goes outside of himself, seeks our good, not just his own, even to the point of, of, of death, uh, that is something that then provokes us to be drawn outside of ourselves as we're called to care for others around us. Not to, not to ultimately solve the problem of evil, but simply to be with uh, one another in the midst of suffering. Um, in, the, in the way that Jesus is uh, with us. And that incarnational approach to the problem of evil, uh, I think, is actually much more biblical and much more effective uh, to actually what, what, really, what really bothers us, what really troubles us uh, in, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of evil. Questions, comments, thoughts on uh, along these lines? What we've done with the book of Job? So grateful, so grateful. Hallelujah. That's good because this is, I mean, I, we spend time on this because I think, like I said at the beginning of this discussion, um, everybody experiences evil and suffering. Yes. It's not a question of the if, but a question of when, to what degree, how. how. Yeah. And so... Um, so to me, maybe of all the different philosophical questions, this one, this one kind of hits home the most because you know, we might read David Hume and be like, I don't really get the teleological argument, whatever, but it's like, the problem of evil suffering is it's real. And so we have to be able to process it both on an intellectual, but, but also in this kind of uh, pastoral level as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, was the reason why I was angry with uh, the other three friends was because they didn't bring those things to God himself? Or like, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's, yeah, there there are a couple things different go, different things going on there. I do think one of the, mm. 
you know, one of the, one of the struggles is, so when you go back to thinking about the reality of, of kind of moral cause and effect, affirming that that's, in, that that's true, but it's almost like they wanted to say that's exhaustively true, like always the righteous will be blessed, always the wicked will suffer. Um, and in some ways that, that also, it, it sort of paints this enclosed picture of our reality that doesn't acknowledge these other factors, including these other spiritual battles that are going on behind the scenes uh, that, that seem a little bit simplistic. And so in that sense, it's almost like Job's friends are, are themselves trying to say, like, here we have the ability to kind of exhaustively understand why God might do or allow certain things to happen. And precisely the point that God makes to Job is that kind of notion that we've completely captured and fully understand God uh, is, is part of what he's trying to work Job beyond. And I think there's this kind of critique of, of his friends. So, so like, his friends put themselves in, as a judge in place of God. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not, maybe not, that's not all the reasons. Yeah. So that was reading um, a little bit more like why, why his friends are in trouble. And, yeah. and somebody pointed out that maybe it's because they didn't Talk rightly about God. Yeah. And they, they bring, talk to God, I guess, like Job and them. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering about that. Yeah, 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 that's a good observation as well. I mean, I think there are, um, yeah, there are multiple things going on there. And I, th I think about that. Yeah, and the way that they, they do kind of stand as judges uh, over, over against him. Uh, and so yeah, it's like that's not really your position to occupy in that in that way. Mm. So maybe maybe it functions as like a stronghold even against like look how much time you waste listening to other people because it's like a long I haven't read the book yet but it's like a long book of other people's voices and it's kind of like when God steps in he just makes it so clear it's kind of like you see how much time you wasted in this book when you could have really just read thirty seven or whatever it is nine <laughs> it's like so in your life like a council community and all this stuff but like. Don't let that be your ultimate, because ultimately you'd be wasting time when really what you need is this word from the Lord. Yeah, I yeah. Out yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in your perspective, because I mean, I, at least I've seen this when bad things happen in your life. Everybody, a fair number of people, want to chime in and kind of say like, "Oh, this is why it's happening, or this is going on, or that's going yeah. on." And this is kind of, again, that's where it's like, man, if, you, if Job's friends had just sat there, they'd have been good. <laughs> uh, but it's as soon as we try to start like coming up with the commentary. Um, for them or for ourselves, it's kind of like you know what that you know you should like the Ravi Zacharias thing. What do I know about it? Like I don't know why this is happening, but I'm going to sit here in the dust uh, with you, and that takes us back. You know, to this point Howard Watts is making is like that that incarnational approach yeah. uh, is much more helpful uh, than a kind of than a logical explanation. So. Let me just give you a statement real quick. First. 